So if we aimed for actual authenticity, it might not have been as effective as what we did with Bob Gordio and Steve Kennedy and Ron Melrose and the music department, um, Steve Orich, of course. But Steve Orich's orchestrations, which sound like, oh, that's like the original record. And then you hear the original record and you go, oh, no, that's not the original record at all. The, um, you know, these guys, um, Steve and Ron and, and uh uh, Steve Kennedy and, and uh, Gordio, of course, supervising the whole thing. They just made this decision that they were going to present Jersey Boys in a way that felt authentic, not actually was authentic, because what the audience wanted to, that what would give the audience the best time was something that felt authentic, and don't get too hung up on what actually, actually happened. It's Twelfth Night. I'm so stupid. It's, it's Twelfth Night. It's Malvolio in Twelfth Night, of course, who, uh, speaking about himself. Um, Malvolio is the, sort of the comic villain in, in uh, Twelfth Night, or What You Will is the full title of Twelfth Night. People don't use that I much over here. But, um, but uh, uh, in Twelfth Night, or What You Will, Malvolio, who's the comic villain, who's trying desperately, he's been fed a lie, which is that Olivia, his mistress, is madly in love with him. She's not. And um, he's been fed this lie uh, by people who want to embarrass him. And so he dresses up in exactly the sort of thing that we know that Olivia hates, principally yellow stockings. And uh, he comes upon Olivia and he says, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Oh, and uh, and he so, he's a, just a pompous ass of a character. And so it's a pompous ass of a line to say. And, uh, you know, and uh, uh, Marshall, I thought it would be a lot of fun to, um, to uh, put Shakespeare's words in um, Frankie because when we um, originally thought, uh, uh, Des and Marshall and I, of uh, uh, organizing the play into four acts, as it were, um, uh, spring, summer, fall, winter, um, we, knew, we knew that Tommy would be uh, the voice of spring because Tommy was the, you know, the sort of the, um, the, inc- the inciting incident of the Four Seasons was Tommy DeVito, who was, you know, organizing a group, making a group. The summer, uh, the full bloom of their success would have to be narrated by Bob because once, they, once Bob joined the group was when they, as a, his, his songwriting skills... Um, uh, are what separated the Four Seasons from bands that were just covering other people's songs. And, um, and we knew that Nick would have to uh, narrate the dissolution of the quartet because in, because in real life, Nick, of course, was the first person to depart the group, and, um, which left Frankie with Winter. We wanted Frankie to have the final word, um, but it also meant that Frankie had Winter, and, um, and I used to call it you know, again, as uh, sort of a Shakespeare thing, the idea of uh, that it was the winter of Frankie's discontent, wow. which of course is, which is not, uh, which is not uh, uh, um, 
uh, Twelfth Night, it's, uh, of course, Richard III. Um, uh, the, the very first line of Richard III is he comes down, he's, he's watching a, he's watching a, um, a funeral. There's a funeral happening upstage. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's about to explain to the audience in a wonderful piece of writing uh, that's one of the great acting gifts in the world, David, um, is Richard III's speech to the audience because he gets to come down to the audience and say, first of all, look at me. Look how, look how ugly I am. I've got this hump on my back. I've got this, I've got like a little uh, half of an arm, you know. It's like, look, look at me. Now here's what I'm going to do. I am going to, see that woman over there who's mourning the death of her husband? She's, you know, all sad. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get her right now. I'm going to get her. I'm going to seduce her right now. You think I can't do it because look at me, right? Watch this. Watch this. Watch how awful and horrible I'm going to be. He tells us what he's going to do, and then he goes off and he does it, which is a great thing for a villain to do because, of course, even though he's a horrible villain, we're completely on his side because he's trusting us. That kind of direct address is something that we very much had in mind as we were starting to write Jersey Boys and, uh, and provide direct address for each of the four seasons. So at the very end, uh, when it's winter, we, we dedicated the idea of the four seasons and the winter of Frankie's discontent to, to Shakespeare in that moment by, having, by, by, by really by having, giving Frankie the, the final word um, uh, in, in, uh, in, as, as the narrator of the winter section of the show, the final act of the show. Um, because, of course, the last word should be Frankie Valley's. It's his group. He's the front man. He's the star of the group. And he's the, you know, he's the, his voice is the famous voice that, you know, that, uh, that we still love so much on the recordings. So there is this, uh, there, there is this kind of Shakespeare undercurrent through, the, through all of Jersey Boys, which sounds very fancy, but... Um, it's the conscious genius, as we call it, on the show. Yeah, that's... Wow. In one of Frankie's monologues, where he's, where he's talking about Francine, and, and he says that no, th- things, are, things are getting better between us. Um, I have a question. Is that line meant to be acted happy or sad? Because that's right before the phone rings. And according to Oh Hello, what Steve Martin like tended to, like likes to tell us was that you know if if you're happy you pick up the phone sad and if you're sad you pick up the phone happy. Frankie has just said everything's copacetic, right? right. Which is right. we know what that means, right? Everything is everything's fine, copacetic. You know, sort of a, a jazz term, right. you know, that we th- threw in there <laughs> yeah. for the musician to say, you know, instead of cool it's or you so know, fine, musician. okay. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. It's uh, you know everything's copacetic, and at the moment, you know, and it's this is like this is. Why it's fun to write drama at the moment that he says everything's fine, the phone rings, and suddenly everything is th- as bad as it could possibly be a parent's worst nightmare. And so that's the answer to your question. Is he supposed to be happy or is he supposed to be sad? He's supposed to be in a completely optimistic mode at that point to the extent that Frankie, the character of Frankie can be. I mean, because Frankie is, is not, uh, you know, sort of a happy-go-lucky kind of a guy, uh, you know, as, as, as uh, painted by Jersey Boys. He's a, you know, he's a serious artist. He's had a serious life. He's had lots of things to deal with. But at this point, everything is copacetic. It's cool. He's taking a breath. He can finally relax. 
And then the phone rings and the worst possible thing happens. And that propels him into the, you know, the final beat of, of, uh, of that section of now, the show. Now, can we ask a clarifying question? You can ask. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all of the direct addresses are happening in the present day, right? 2004, 2005? Yeah. So it's so interesting. I mean, watching Aaron, he's the one that I've, he's the one that we've seen the most do the show. It's like, so he says everything's copacetic, the phone rings, and it's like, he knows what's going to happen because he's in present day. He's telling us what's, what, what happened. But oh, no. If you're talking about that moment specifically, where he is specifically, is he is in the moment of his life just before he discovers that his daughter has died of a drug overdose, which is not 2004 and right. 2005. Okay. That I understand. Fine. But- I guess I guess it depends on the way they play it because it's like the way it's like he knows what happened he knows what's going to happen but he has to tell well, wait the a minute. story. You know, let anyway. me think about that for a second. Yeah. Maybe what maybe maybe what I said isn't right. Maybe he is in the present moment, and then as soon as he picks up the phone, he is acting in the context of the terrible moment where he found out that his daughter was dead. He gets this terrible call from the hospital or the police. And, um, and then he hangs up the phone, and then he immediately is back to us speaking about, um, you know... Motherfucker with the needle. How he... Well, yeah, I, I, I wasn't going to actually oh, okay. say that, because I, I don't want people to fall out of their chairs. And, um, but, uh, 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 you know, the, his self-lacerating comments about his kid are, again, to us until the priest shows up and sits down with him and then he's in that particular moment. So I think that it's, I think that it's true that when, when the characters are, are addressing us directly, they are stepping out of the present moment of the action and stepping into the present moment in, in the, uh, uh, in the right, theater. Exactly. Right, exactly. Well, because there's a trend in the direct addresses where, so Frankie says, and we talk and it's all getting better between us. Phone rings he still has another thought that he wants to say. Then he gets into the adiposa nodata line, this too shall pass. When I come to realize it cuts both ways, the bad passes, but also the good. I feel like that line, this is just how I interpreted it, is that like it, it subconsciously, like, like he's he's in between both moments as exactly. he's talking to us. Exactly. That's why, that's that's why we wrote the, we wrote almost entirely, we wrote the uh, the direct address passages in what's called the historical present mm -hmm. as opposed to using past tense. So you can say things are getting better between us instead of things were, things were getting better between us. Everything was fine. Um, so that you can move and then, and then And then this terrible thing happened. So to... To make it all feel present in the present tense, we use the historical present tense in the uh, in in the narration sections of the show. So I go so I go to the drugstore and I buy myself a pack of cigarettes. That's a historical present tense. The if I were speaking to you, um, you know, outside of the theater, I would say, oh, I you know I went to the drugstore and I bought myself a pack of cigarettes. And you would know that that was something that happened then, whenever then is. But if I say, so I go to the drugstore and I walk up to the counter and I say, hi, how are you? Let me have a pack of cigarettes. You don't know exactly when that happened, you, but, but um, 
I'm sort of narrating you through the past tense by speaking about it in the historical present. Historical because it's already happened, it's history, but it's describing the historical event in the present tense, which is why it's called historical present. Rick, sir, that is genius. For two reasons that I just thought of right now, because that's how Italians talk. Like, we, we, ne- we never talk. And like, oh yeah, I went to the store and I bought, it's like, yeah, so it's like, so, so I says to the guy, I do this and then I do that. That's how we talk. And plus it, it totally works with the way that you set up the show chronologically. Yeah, but it also makes it feel, it gives the audience the feeling that it's all happening now for the first time, as opposed to being recounted, which means that somehow, I mean, it, 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 which sort of removes the, the events of the story from the present moment, which, which affects our emotional involvement with the story. You know, it was all part of casting the audience at the theater in the role of audience in the you know at the club at the stadium at the concert at the you know at at the you know in the at the beach what you know wherever they were performing the songs and they performed the songs out to the audience the audience is cast in the role of the audience at that moment on the steel pier wherever they happen to be and um wherever i happen uh, to be yeah <laughs> you know yeah. so the so the it for it, it to, for the audience to keep feeling like this is all happening in the present moment it was important I think to make the decision to um, have those narrative passages uh, in the historical present. And as you said, it also feels authentic to the Italian, um, um, to Italian American English. Right, yeah. yes. I have a question about copacetic. Italian American men tend to use one fancy, sophisticated word every hundred words they say. Was, was that a pattern that you noticed, like, or that you have noticed throughout your entire life? And that's kind of how you structured the language? Uh, <laughs> I, I should just say yes. It's because a loaded I, question. I, no, I, I mean, I don't really, I never really thought about it before. Frankie Valli, uh, the man, is uh, a very, very dapper, bright, articulate guy. Um, uh, he he also um, is an expert at what he does, and he is a lyric factotum, which is you know why in that same section of the show that uh, that we're talking about, um, uh, where he starts, where he recites the lyric to a song. It's because when you're talking to Frankie, he does that a lot. He you know he will, and you know, and Gaudio says, Frankie, what? what? Who, the guy who wrote the lyric doesn't remember what it is, but Frankie remembers it. And Frankie remembers every lyric to every song from the 20th century, whether it's a Four Seasons song or not. So, you know, you can, he'd be great on, you know, stump, stump the Lyricist or name, you know, some name that tune version of where, you know, you hear a line of a lyric without the melody and Frankie Valley would win every day. So um, uh, he's... It, it, to capture his particular personality involves um, demonstrating that while he may not have had a college education, he's a very articulate, very intelligent guy, he's very good at expressing himself, he's lived a full life, and met a lot of people, and his vocabulary is, is uh, a sophisticated one. Wow. Thank, thank you for telling us that, because I feel like not everyone knows that, and because the show is so relatable, where it's you know four guys from, from Belleville, you know, it... Um, People don't oh, yeah. automatically and he's, think and that he's, he would you know, be at, at such a high caliber. Oh yeah. Caliber-wise. Oh, and, he, and he's dapper as hell. You know, he's he's he. It's unbelievable. I mean, I've been on I've been on really long air flights with Frankie, 
And when I get off an airplane, you know, I look like I look like I've been on eight airplanes, you know, as you know, and uh, and he comes off and he he always looks absolutely put together and he's got his every, he's very, very well organized, very, very dapper. Um, he's a very, 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 very sophisticated uh, in many, many ways that people might not attribute to somebody that they think of as just being like this sort of short Italian front man for a band of, from a long time ago. Right. Wow. Well, case in point. Now we know that. I think I, I needed to know that background a little bit more about the, the man himself. We have another question. Well, I hope so you have, I hope you have at least one we, more. Oh, we have, <laughs> we have 500. I mean, I've set aside for, for three weeks. I yeah. mean, I don't know, you know we're, only, we're only 15 <laughs> minutes into this thing. I... <laughs> True. So how do you decide which... I sounded like, can I butify? Um, how do you decide what lines are more cut and dry? Where, like you mentioned before, you are telling, the audience is hearing what's going to happen. No, just the direct way of hearing information versus a more nuanced example. Because when you have Nick Massey, where he says, no, it just came out of my mouth. That's something that everyday people say something that we think about whenever maybe we made a mistake and we're thinking about our decisions in life. But then you have Tommy who just does and says what he wants. You know, so how do you decide um, what lines are more nuanced for the audience and which ones are more direct to let an actor know how to deliver a line? Was that a that, weird question? Well, it's, it's, I think that's actually many questions, I think. But, um, yeah. you know, the... The Nick Massey line that you're citing was an op- was the an opportunity um, for uh, Marshall and me as the writers of the show to invent something because Nick wasn't there to tell us. So it's it's a reasonable question why you know why'd you do it Nick why'd you leave the group reasonable question because as he poses to the audience, you know, everything was going great. I mean, we'd, I, I'd stuck with the group through all the rough times. Why, why on earth would I pick the time when we were on, at the top to just walk away? Why did, why'd, you do, why'd you do it? He would ask himself that question, but of course we couldn't have that conversation with him. So we got to just do what dramatists like to do, which is to just make something up. And there was, you know, even Bob and Frankie and Tommy couldn't say, no, that's not, that, that wasn't right. Because they wouldn't know what was in Nick's head. Only Nick would know what was in Nick's head. So we got to get into Nick's head instead, which is why we came up with, rather than try to invent a reason that would feel false, we invented a, a reason, as you said, that everybody said at one point in their life, which is, it just came out of my mouth. And, and as soon as it did, I knew that was what I had to do. And... Um, um, it's a moment where the audience recognizes in his behavior something that they have done themselves, and therefore their affection for Nick goes through the roof. And then, of course, he's also about to um, demonstrate, after confessing that uh, his own children called him Uncle Nick because he was, you know, always off with other women and, you know, was not uh, the model, a model father to his kids that, um, you know, he finally learned the lesson that there's maybe more important things than being on the road singing songs and, and picking up girls who'd written their phone numbers on cocktail napkins every night. And he's going to go home and spend some more time with his kids. So what we're doing there really is, you know, uh, 
it's like uh, you know at the end of the Miss America contest, uh, they they you know they they go down the row of contestants and say you know what how what what would you like to do to make the world a better place? And they yes. all have their answers: world peace, whatever peace. you know. And they're all trying to get they're all trying to get the audience to vote for them, you know. And in a, in a way, those four speeches at the end of the show, those you know sort of American graffiti speeches at the end of the at the end of Jersey Boys, are all about you know are, are really the characters saying. You know, are you is are you going? Are you going to side with my version of this story? You're going to be my version. You're going to be my version. So there he is. You know, sort of explaining that he's you know a good guy after all. He behaves the way we've all behaved. He's self-deprecating. You know, I for you know when there's four guys and and you're Ringo, he understands that he's you know in many ways the 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 fourth of the quartet, and um, and it's endearing. And, you know, and then Des gave him this amazing exit, which is to, you know, the, the heaven the heaven exit, which is only the, only the characters who, you know, that we're never going to see again get to make that exit up the spiral staircase and then upstage and then offstage right. And uh, it's a long, 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 long exit. Uh, and, uh, and he's the only one who gets to do that. That was, uh, and that's Des helping out that, storytelling through blocking, which is, of course, you know, why the theater is so much better than reading something on a page. Right. Um, ah, which is so you, gorgeous. Did you guys invent Uncle Nicky, like that whole thing? No, no, no. No, uh, no we, were, uh, we were told that by uh, um, uh, Bob and Frankie and uh, Tommy at various points. You know, at the beginning of our process, Marshall and I really functioned more as journalists and we were inter- we did a lot of interviewing of these guys, and then we switched hats and uh, uh, became dramatists. Uh, and that work that was the work that we did by ourselves and in concert with Des. Um, but uh, in the journalist part, uh, you know, we we asked them a lot about uh, about Nick. And then uh, later, uh, Nick's son, Nick Massey Jr., uh, came to audition for the show. <laughs> And oh, um, wow. and he oh, and wow. he confirmed uh, he he confirmed the Uncle Nicky uh, to us. Yeah, that was pretty wild. You know, I was sitting next to Gordio at the audition, and in came Nick's son. And what he did was for his audition was he sang Nick's harmony line. <laughs> he didn't sing the mel- oh. he didn't sing the melody line of Sherry. He sang the harmony line of Sherry without any without <laughs> any other right. vocal. So it was the bass. Yeah, it was it was it was. It was unfor- it was unforgettable, and that's wow. why I haven't forgotten it. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. If it's unforgettable, yes, that's unforgettable. why. When did you start the interview process? When you mean like what yes. date? Well, like so what year? Well, uh, uh, I got a call from a former client of mine. I, I used to work at an advertising agency for 20 years. I was the creative director of an advertising agency. And, and um, one of my clients was a music industry guy. It was probably a little mobbed up. And um, uh, I was uh, no longer at the ad agency. I was working as creative consultant at the Walt Disney Studio. And um, I was out in Burbank. And the phone rang one day. And I picked it up, and it was this fellow. And um, it was about a year after Mamma Mia opened on Broadway. He called and he said, uh, hey, I've got, the, uh, I've got the rights to the Four Seasons music. 
what do you think about doing a Broadway musical with the Four Seasons music? And I said, well, I love Vivaldi, but, you know, this is... But, <laughs> but you really think a whole show? A whole show? And he said, no, no, you idiot. Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. And I said, the guy with the high voice? Yeah, I remember those records when I was, you know, three. Um, what, what? He said, well, I think we could do a Mamma Mia with the Four Seasons songs. And I said, being, you know, a kind of over-educated, show-offy, obnoxious person, um, uh, said, well, but somebody's already done that. Why would you want to do this? Why do you want to do what somebody's already done? And he, you know, I'm sure rolled his eyes. Um, I also, I'm also sure that he must have called everyone he knew before he called me. You know, it's not like, oh, I know. I'm going to call this guy who's never written a musical before and ask him to write a musical. He must have spoken to a thousand people, all of whom had said no. So I was probably the last call he would ever make. And, um, and so out of desperation, he said, look, do me a favor. Just have lunch with the guy. Who? Frankie Valli. He's going to want to have lunch with Frankie Valli and Bob Gordio. Who's that? Well, he's the guy. He's another guy from the group. And he's the guy who wrote the songs. Have lunch with the two of them. And, and, then, and then decide. And uh, I said, oh, oh Okay. And at, uh, I called my friend Marshall Brickman. I, uh, you know, one of the things that I tried to do at Disney was, was um, bring uh, writers with, that I knew had great screenplays into the studio, and you know, maybe the studio would make the movie. And, I, and that's what I was trying to do with several screenplays that Marshall had uh, at, uh, at the time, or was working on. And so I called him and I said, look, so, you know, suppose, suppose, uh, suppose we write a Broadway musical together. And he said, I don't know how to do that. I've never done that. And I said, well, neither have I. So at, at, at the very, here's, here's what would happen. We would waste some time of our own. Um, we're not gonna, they're not going to pay us anything to do it. But, you know, maybe there's something to do and maybe we'll, we'd have some fun. And, um, and I owed him, a, you know, some poker money. Uh, and uh, I said, uh, and that way, you know, and if it becomes a show, then, you know, I won't, I won't owe you the poker money I owe you. <laughs> And so uh, that was why Marshall came, attended this lunch. And we met on uh, 46th Street at the back of a dark Italian restaurant. And, um, and there was Bob and Frankie and uh, Marshall and me. And, and um, we just started chatting the way that one does. Uh, and, um, you know, it's... A free lunch is a free lunch, you know. It's, you know, I thought, all right, this this will be interesting. Marshall, Marshall is is a it, like you, David. Marshall is a, a uh, has a degree in music. He's a very accomplished musician, a great uh, a great uh, a great uh, gold record uh, 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 banjo player. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Deliverance uh, with that famous banjo duet, uh, that's Marshall Brickman and his roommate Eric. Uh, Weisberg, I think is his name. Um, uh, Marshall's very, very achieved. Marshall played in a, in a band with John Phillips and Michelle Phillips before, before the Mamas and the Papas. Um, you know, Marshall knows about music. He's, you know, he, uh, you know, very, through his talent and through his education. And um, he's, and at, he was a little bit of a snob about the about pop music because he's you know because he 
it's, it's because it's a simpler form of music and he's into you know music and music theory and all that so he uh uh, but of course, there were some of the songs that that he knew, and I and I played him a section of a movie called The Deer Hunter, which was a, a very important movie to me in 1979 when it came out, because uh, I was doing a play at the time, acting in a play with Chris Walken, who was in the in that movie and became sort of famous from that movie, won the Oscar for that movie. Um, uh, and that it, there's a sequence in that movie built around "Can't Take My Eyes Off You." The movie takes place in the Pittsburgh's blue-collar steelworker town um, on the, you know, the, uh, begins on the eve of the, this group of friends about to ship out to Vietnam. And, uh, and you can't, uh, can't Take My Eyes Off You plays a, a, a very important mo- uh, part in that opening sequence of the film, The Deer Hunter. And I played that for Marshall, remembering it so vividly from 1979 when, I, when the movie was out. And, and I said, look, see, this is what's really fascinating about the music that these guys make. Look who's listening to it. It's these guys. Um, it's, not, it's not like, it's not the footage that we see of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show where you just see girls screaming. This is like guys, blue-collar guys, listening to songs written and performed by blue-collar guys. The guys in the movie look just like the guys in the group. This is, a, this, is, this is music that speaks to an audience that doesn't come to the theater, generally. So, um, and, he, and, and I said, listen to the power of this song on those characters. They didn't pick this song randomly. This is an underscore in a movie soundtrack that just plays under a montage. This is a scene built around that song and that Stan Kenton horn riff and those lyrics. And every, all the characters are singing the song along to the, to the um, you know to the per, to the performance of the song, and um, uh, and that moved Marshall. That really that sort of hooked him, and uh, so you know so there we were at the back of the restaurant, and and uh, you know just to make the time pass, Bob and Frankie started uh, t- telling us about the band and how they got together and what it was like to ride a rocket when they finally hit, and and you know we asked them. How come we'd never heard or read their story? And I, you know, I, I mean, music fans know all about the Beatles and the Stones and the Dead and the Kinks and the Who. And all I knew about the Seasons was the music. Now, and all Marshall knew about the Seasons was the music. And when they told us that they were never really written about because they were these blue-collar guys without any glamour quotient, you know, they didn't have long hair, they didn't have exotic accents, they didn't come from across the pond, they came from across the river. You know, the Jersey being, you know, the joke state. Uh, you know, we got very, very interested and suggested that, um, that their untold story should be the show, not a Mamma Mia thing, you know, which is to say a... a, a, a a song list with a story retrofitted around the song list, but that the but the story of these guys, um, with the songs as sort of the signposts along the way of that story, um, you know, could be something amazing because uh, you know those movie posters that say "based on a true story," you know. What appealed to us instantly about these guys and everything they went through was the, the notion that we would very honestly be able to say, based on a good story, and incidentally, an untold story, 
you know, so as, as would-be writers, an untold good story, okay, that had us leaning forward the same way the audience does when they watch the show. You know, we were only behaving, the two of us, the way the audience would end up behaving when, when the show was on stage because the story's really good and we, we don't know it yet. So sure, that we have, you know, oh, well, you know that this was the song you listened to the first time you went bowling or this was the song you listened to when you were making out in the back of the car. This was the song you listened to when you went off to Vietnam. Great. But there was no universal context for those songs or what the guys were doing who, when they made those songs because that was an untold story and we thought as they started to spill it, the, one anecdote after another, after another, after another, it, was, it just seemed like um, the motherload of, of good drama. There was conflict, there, was, there were villains, there were heroes, there was love, there was revenge, there was sex, there was death, it, it, everything that a good story should have. So, you know, so we said, you know, why don't we do that? And, and they said, you know, go ahead, knock yourself out. You know, write some pages because we want to see what you guys are like as writers, a reasonable thing to say, you know, because we don't want to be cartoons. And um, so uh, Marshall and I wrote a treatment and we gave it to them, we, you know, and they looked at it and they said, okay, all right, we'll let you guys be the writers. Now what do we do? Well, the, all the, the Broadway producers had all been my clients during my 20 years at the ad agency. So I said, well, we've got to find, you know, a producer. And they said, well, uh, I said, well, but the guy who called me, they, they didn't want to be in business with the guy who called me, who had the option on their life story. So they said, let's wait until 2003 before we do anything else. This was, you know, halfway, this was halfway through, or this was the summer of 2002. Let's wait um, because uh, uh, the... Because then everything will be free and clear, and we can do what we we can do whatever we want. And I thought, all right, well, this is never going to happen. Like I said to Marshall, well, we've only wasted our own time, but we had some fun. You know, we, you know, we got to hang out, Marshall and I, and it was great. I mean, it was fun for me. I hope it was fun for Marshall. I think it was. You know, we just started, you know, kicking around an idea and doing that thing that writers do when they collaborate, and it was very exciting for me because I hadn't had that experience, and and. Uh, and then I thought, okay, well, it's never going to happen. And right after New Year's in 2003, the phone rang, and it was Gaudio calling from Nashville. And he said, okay, well, you said you, said you, you know these Broadway producers? Let's, uh, you know, what, how do you want to do it? So, you know, I made appointments with people. I, I dragged Marshall along with me, and, uh, uh, and everybody looked at us like, we, like I was in that first phone call, like we were crazy. And um, and the very last uh, the very last people we went to oh not because I didn't love them it's because they were having some they were having some issues and it seemed like they wouldn't they were not people who were going to be um, thinking about pitches at, at at that particular time they were going through some um, some you know some business turmoil and uh, so I just thought well you know they'll never go for it. But everybody, you know, at some point I said, all right, well, let's go to the Dodgers anyway, even if they just throw us out. And they got it. They, I mean, they just got it. They got it in terms of, oh, you mean they sold 125 million records and you're telling us that their fans are guys and women who are now between... 55 and 65 <laughs> years old. Well, that's like everybody who goes to the theater. 
So, so okay, so we'll produce the show. But there was no, still no show. And then, um, you know, okay, so who's going to direct this thing? And uh, Des McEnough had been uh, a Dodger at one time, but Des Mac- and Des McEnough had also directed me in a musical that he wrote uh, that we did down at the Public Theater for Joe Papp in 1982 um, called The Death of Von Richthofen is Witnessed from Earth. But then when I was in advertising, I did the advertising for Tommy, which Des directed, and Big River, which Des directed, and uh, his, the revival of How to Succeed with Matthew Broderick that he directed, you know, uh, A Walk in the Woods. Um, so it shows, shows that he did, that started at La Jolla after he became artistic director of La Jolla Playhouse um, and that came to Broadway uh, invariably were um, marketed by me. So I, Des was always on my radar. I certainly wasn't on his radar, but, you know, I, I knew, I remembered how much he wanted to be, you know, like a rock and roll guy. So it seemed like he'd be the perfect person to ask. And then it turned out, which we didn't know, um, that Gaudio had spoken to Des like the year before about um, turning Peggy Sue Got Married into a musical. And so they actually knew each other. And um, so Des was like, Des said yes before we even finished asking the question. And it it turned out... um, because luck is always a part of everything that works in the theater. Um, he had a slot. This was now the, like, you know, November or December of 2003. He had in August a slot at La Jolla had suddenly opened up. So he said to me and Marshall, um, I'll do this, but that means you have to write it now. And we have, to, it's got to be ready by, you know, the spring, because then I have to, we have to have auditions and we, I've got to take it to designers and, bid out sets and costumes and all that stuff so that there can be a production. And, uh, but if you can, if you can pull that off, um, we'll, we'll go into rehearsal in the middle of August um, and we'll open at, uh, in October and uh, we'll play uh, you know, for six weeks in La Jolla and see what happens. And so we said, okay, sure. And it was never about anything other than the ex- having the experience. Uh, uh, I'm talking about uh, me and Marshall. So it wasn't, you know, well, let's, you know, we'll have to have our agent get in touch with your agent or any of that bullshit. It was, you know, it was, okay, this sounds like something that might be interesting to do. I had a full-time job during the day as creative consultant for Walt Disney Studios. Marshall, you know, had, Marshall had lots and lots of irons in the fire going on. So we were trying to write this, you know, after hours and, uh, and Saturday mornings and, you know, whenever we could. Uh, and... Uh, uh, and then in April of 2004, we had auditions, and uh, and in, and sure enough, in August uh, we had rehearsals. But the very first time we ever heard the script, actually, uh, there were no workshops, there were no readings, there were no music stands in sight. The very first time we heard the script out loud was the first day of rehearsals with the cast in the basement of a building at La Jolla Playhouse. The very first time we heard it when it wasn't me and Marshall just reading it to each other. Or to or to Des, so um, uh, it doesn't usually happen that way. But because we didn't know, uh, we didn't understand how unusual it was. What was your and Marshall's partnership, like writing partnership, like um, for all for all the sh- all the stuff you wrote together? Like how how what was the give and take? Oh, I'm gonna write this scene, or I'm gonna write this scene. Uh, well, you know, Marshall being somebody who uh, understood 
uh, who had a history of collaboration, um, said, here's, here's, how, here's what's worked for me. Let's talk. Let's take really long walks and just talk about everything. We'll talk about what the story is. We'll talk about what, this, what has to happen in the scenes. We'll talk about what the characters are doing and thinking and feeling. And, and, um, and we'll walk until there's nothing else to do but write it. And then it'll write itself very easily. And um, so that's what we did with Jersey Boys. We, we, we spent a lot of time talking and walking after we, I mean, after, after spending a lot of time with the guys um, uh, and interviewing them, um, which was interesting. Uh, then we sort of hit the, hit the ground and, uh, and walked through the park and we would sit on park bench. We looked, we probably looked very strange. <laughs> um, not as strange as, um, you know, uh, when I write alone now, I, do, I still do the same long walks in the park, but I'm talking to myself, which must look really, really strange. <laughs> well, sometimes it's the best way to have a decent conversation. <laughs> I, I, I know, it's so strange. I always, I always heard that if you can talk, you can write. If you can write, you can talk. And that's well, yeah, that's uh, that sounds like a good thing. Uh, but I think also what you have to do to be able to write is you have to be able to you have to be a good listener. Um, sometimes people are so busy talking that they don't know how to listen. Um, the great writer Jane Wagner wrote a line for Lily Tomlin in a play called The Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe, um, where uh, a woman is describing somebody. Uh, and she says, he spoke with an intensity, he listened with an intensity that most people only have while speaking. And I, I remembered that line, I remember hearing that line in 1984 in the theater thinking, I, I think I'd better start listening more. Mm-hmm. 100%. Uh, yes. And yeah. I think Active listening. It's, it's, <laughs> I think it's, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, mine and Gia's partnership as well, it's, I think it's a great reason why we both work very well together. We both listen to each other, you know, empathetically and actively, and um, it's, it's so, so important. Well, how do you know each other, the two of you? Well, so we... we Funny story! Yeah, <laughs> we, we met... Um, we, we only met um, we in met 2019. November, so- November 3rd, right. 2019. November 3rd. Um, I was living in Newark. She was living in... Before the, your birthday. Before your birthday. Happy monthly birthday, by yes, the way. Yes, happy monthly birthday yes. <laughs> to Rick Ellis. And um, Oh, I see, because it's the 17th today. Exactly. Yes. Oh, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. You know, on May 17th, which is my half, our half birthday, I mean, Bob Gordio's and mine, that was the day that we got the August Wilson Theater, then the Virginia Theater. That, oh, but it was, but it, was But it was May 17th. And, I, and that we found out that we were indeed going to get a Broadway theater because it was very, very touch and go for months that there would be a place for us to play because a theater had to be available at, at the time when Dez's calendar was available for him to be in New York directing the show and taking the show and getting it up. So it, it, was, it was not a fait accompli by any stretch of the imagination. There was, and, there was a, and the window was tightening and tightening and tightening and there was no real estate available and we finally got the Virginia Theater, which was renamed the August Wilson Theater, um, whilst we were in the midst of previews. But, um, but uh, so that was May 17th, 2005. May, May 17th, May 17th, May, exactly one year later, May 17th, 2006, was the day that uh, former President Clinton came to see the show on Broadway and, uh, and uh, came backstage and met everybody. And, and uh, you know, that was... That was exciting. When, you know, when, when presidents and former presidents and first ladies and, you know, the 
you know, the Senate majority leaders and, um, you know, people like that are coming to see the show, you, you know that you've clicked into a different kind of uh, hit, you know. It's like, uh, and then whoever else sits in those seats, they're like, oh, yeah, these are the Clinton seats or these, uh, these are the Obama seats, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't come with uh, Hillary. She was doing something, I guess. Uh, but he came with Chelsea. And, uh, and uh, Hillary saw the show later. But, uh, you know, the day after, the, sh- the, day after um, the Tony Awards, the day after we won the Tony for Best Musical uh, from the party that Sunday night, the, uh, the guys got on a bus and went down to the White House to perform for the current president, George W. Bush. Uh, right. Uh, yes, yes. And uh-huh. That's so cool. Yeah. You know, that, awesome. you know these, the, the, uh, the heads of state were lining up. Hey, oh, it's like, <laughs> and then you know go. what they say: getting a musical to Broadway is like the Stations of the Cross. To the Cross. The I've heard that. I've heard that. How did you come up with that pun? I, that sounds like Marshall. That sounds too smart for okay. me. It sounds like it sounds too smart for me. Um, <laughs> uh, but you have to always. I, it's there are a million things like that in the script. They're just a million specific things, as opposed to, you know, you you have. That's just. I mean, that's part of the job of the writer is to is to be specific as possible, sometimes because it helps the comedy, but what it always helps is um, uh, as many bells as you can ring for the audience, and that's done through specificity. That's how you find commonality with the audience, not, believe it or not, not with generality. Generality sounds like the logical way to appeal to the most people, but it's actually specificity that appeals to the most people. It's like Bob Gaudio's monologue when you're talking about the laws of physics and gravity. Sure. Uh, that's, that is a vintage Brickman speech. You know, there is the, the, uh, the laws of gravity speech. It's, uh, I remember the day he showed that to me and I thought, well, this is very, this is very, very good. You know, the other thing you have to be careful of doing, um, and this is something I learned from Marshall. I mean, certainly it was, you know, writing Jersey Boys was a masterclass for me um, as, a, as, a, as a would-be writer. Um, you know, I'm very good with anger. I'm very good with um, agitation. I'm very good with fights because, you know, I'm, I'm very, very good with fights uh, because I've, I've, I've just, I've played a lot of fights in my life. <laughs> so I'm very sorry. So it's easy for me to summon that up. Um, and, uh, to, uh, but, in, in, but it was such a masterclass for me working with Marshall on Jersey Boys and, um, and the other thing that he taught me, and I think I'm, he may have said this about the grav- law of gravity. He said, he said I, I said, gee, Marshall, that's great. He said, it sounds, but it, does it sound more like me than it sounds like Bob? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I, I Marshall, never like when it sounds like you're hearing the author's voice. Or his term is the hand of the author. He said, you never want to see the hand of the author because that's just not very crafty writing. You want... You want the audience to think, oh, these, to forget that this is something that exists on a page, that this is, these are just words that are coming out of people's mouths in the moment. These people are just speaking to us. That's great writing. And um, so if it does it, you know, do you buy that this is something that the character of Bob Gaudio would say? And, uh, and I said, yeah, yeah. Now, it's not, I mean, he, he wasn't, he wasn't, um, uh, que- the question wasn't based on Bob being on Bob's intelligence. It's uh, because Bob's a supremely intelligent person, um, and um, 
it's it, it's more to do with the metaphor of it. You know, I mean, um, there's lots and lots of metaphorical writing. I think that it was after that conversation and listening to Marshall talking about metaphor that I that you know that the crew scene happened where metaphor actually becomes part of the dialogue because that was me sort of writing back to Marshall. He oh here look what I learned, and I'm going to put it in the, look I'm going to put it in the mouth of crew who was the you know sort of the the teacher and in that moment you know where he's a he is he is educating Tommy DeVito who is all heat and you know and uh and uh instinct he is educating him um in that moment about uh, the wider world um and one of the one of the things he says is uh you know it's a metaphor i remember typing it in three you know with three periods um, and uh, and thinking this will be uh, this will be funny, and then of course you know it and, and it and it always got a you know a huge laugh. But it's really a tribute. To, it's really a, it's really an inside tribute to Marshall Brickman. That's beautiful because that that's what a collaboration really is. And and when you were saying how you were like you were acting as the journalist, you and Marshall talking to Frankie Valli and Bob Gaudio, when you said that like if this was like guys would listen to this. You know, it, it was can take was for those people. They weren't trying to lift the Pentagon. You know, and the people that were drawn to the band. Well, you know, were like well, the no. Bear in mind that and, the the Pentagon, yeah. the whole sort of you know Mary Prankster's um, aspect of left wing liberal New York over educated, over analyzed, over privileged left wing progressivism, um, as reflected in the that movement at the end of the sixties, was the was diametrically different from the guys who were actually shipping out and going to Vietnam and fighting and dying for the country. And, you know, I I was one of those, you know, when I was a kid, I would be on a bus every Sunday to Washington, D.C. to protest the war in Vietnam. The guys who were buying the season's records were the guys who went over and fought. And when they came back from fighting, they were disrespected. And, um, you know, by by the culture elite and by the and by, you know, large swaths of society, um, uh, because the Vietnam War was looked down on, and so therefore people who fought in it were looked down on as mm-hmm. veterans. And, um, and the Four Seasons records and the guys who bought those records were those guys. And, when they, and so that speech, the, you know, levitating the Pentagon and all that, those are specific reference, those are, those are buzzwords and buzz terms for those guys who, who didn't just talk a good game and protest. They were the ones who went over and defended the country with the best will in the world. You don't understand what that's like, what it, you know, when, it, when there was a draft and everyone was terrified of having to go to the other side of the world and fight for something we didn't really understand why. And a lot of people used their connections to not go, and a lot of people um, you know, went to Canada so that they didn't have to go. And, and, uh, and, um, uh, but the, but the, but the, a lot of people just a lot of people went because that's what you did. You went and you fought for your country, and they came back. And it was so, it was, so that speech of Gordio's in, in that moment, that pre-dawn moment, is um, is uh, is meant to be and and has always been an edifying moment for those particular guys. And it was very always very gratifying once audiences were coming to stand in the back of the house and see heads nodding men's heads nodding and you'd know okay that's a vet there that's a guy who went over that's a guy who went over that's a guy who went over um you know the the guys who went over as described in that speech you know the guys flipping burgers and and uh, and pumping gas the guys who went 
over and fought and came back. Um, so the so the levitating the Pentagon was really sort of to demonstrate to those guys that this music was created for them and that this show loves them. And they finally they, they they could get the respect that they that eluded them in the at the end of the sixties and the early seventies. Thank you for doing that. And by doing that, you're teaching the younger generation, like David and me, that that's what happened and, and that's the history. Well and first and, and, and it was because I was teaching myself, you know, I was such a I was so smug, you know, coming out of how I grew up and what the politics in my family were. Um, you know, and I dare say this was true of uh, of uh, Marshall too, who you know, uh, you know, we both sort of New York lefties, and um, and so we thought we knew better, and by getting to know Bob and Frankie and the music and their lives, we um, encountered this thing that's you know really important to make yourself into a fully rounded human being, which is called humility. You know that we weren't we weren't such hot shit. You know that, and a lot of people were disrespected. And and if not that they were owed anything, but if we could tip our hat to them in the show, it would be it would be humble humble to do it. And um, and that's why we did it. It it was it was a good thing for them, and it was a good thing for us as men to to um, to do that for them. And how special that you wrote like that part of history in the dialogue for Bob specifically. Like you gave those words to the man who wrote the lyrics that related to all of those people. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I yeah, mean, like Bob. You gave Bob, that to Bob. Bob was very, yeah. you know, Bob was very, very proud as a songwriter in the '60s and as a kid. I mean, younger than either of you, believe it or not. I mean, bear in mind. When he when when the Beatles when the Beatles had when the Beatles had three songs in the top five or whatever it was, you know, the, and the other two songs were written by Bob Gaudio. He was younger than the two of you are right now, and um, and he so that Bob Gaudio and the Bob Gaudio who year, forty years later was telling us what it was like to be in the top five with the Beatles, um, was uh, you know kind of a great. You know who do you know? Who do you know? Who's that? You know who do you know? Who's that song from the top five with the Beatles? This guy, this guy. I mean, this is the guy who did it. He wrote those songs, you know, and and sold those records, and and uh, there was no uh, there was no magic to it. You know, he just had the gift of the hook. This kid, Bob Gordio, and um, and uh, you know, so it's a you know, it was lovely to be able to give him that tribute moment in the, the, to give the character that moment in the show as a tribute to the real man sitting in the audience watching it. Right. Yeah. So and he's saying it as essentially and crew, and I I love how you said that crew was the teacher and he is the one who who actually told everyone point blank it's a metaphor because as a young would be writer, um, hopefully. We're always told to show and not tell. But sometimes you need a character to just tell you what's going on. And that's that's Bob Crew. Well, he he gives them the most important advice in the show, you know. He he says go out and find, you know, figure out who you are. Figure out what your voice is, figure out what your identity is. You have an identity crisis, he says to them. You know, you that's why your that's why your band had 45 different names. Go out and figure out figure <laughs> right. out who you are. And once you figure out who you are, you'll figure out a sound for yourselves. And and that rung a bell for young Bob Gaudio. 
because otherwise they were, you know, they were covering other people's songs as we, you know, depict in the show. They, uh, you know, they had an interesting sound. People were confused what it was. You know, is it four guys? Is three guys and a girl? Is it a black group? You know, you know, nobody really understood the Four Seasons from the records. Um, but they, uh, you know, when they were covering songs, and then Gordia went off and and uh, and wrote these, uh, you know, the the first spate of songs for them to sing that would be their own songs. But that happened really because Bob Cruz said, "You need to figure out who you are. Important. It sounds easy, uh, but uh, he he was the um, what you would call in in writing the inciting incident is Bob Cruz saying, "Go out and figure out." who you are, and then come back to me. And then they come back to him, and then he does the next sort of heroic thing, which is he comes up with the money to, uh, to, uh, to make those first recordings. Otherwise, you know, otherwise, who knows? You know, of course, Tommy said he would come up with the money, but he didn't come up with the money. Or he came up with the money, and, but he also took a lot of money you know, for other purposes and got himself into a hole that would come back and haunt the band you know, years later. So... Uh, uh, you know, crew, uh, crew in, in Act One of the show is the is sort of the heroic character, the the f- and then uh, you know the the the, the mob boss Egypto Carlo in Act Two becomes the fixer for the group. You know, he was a he was a, a you know a very complicated uh, real life person um, who did a lot of uh, questionable things, shall we say? But in our in our show, what he does is he figures out a way to keep all four of them alive, and. Um, Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, so it, in, in terms of the history of the Four Seasons, Jip to Carl is sort of heroic, too. Would you say the girls are also anchors of the show? Well, sure. I mean, as soon, well, when you have three actors playing 46 roles, um, oh, what, you know, what that does is, it, I mean, for the, for the actor, um, it becomes a great chance to show off, and and um, and that's always a fun thing for actors to do. So, um, you know, uh, those women um, would uh, invariably would stay a long, long time in the show because it, it, it was it's it's fun to sh- fun to show off that way. And they, you know, they all got to they all got to ha- demonstrate, um, you know, a very very broad skill set. I think. Right. And uh, well, just the characters, like, cause, like Mary would say to Frankie, it's like, yeah, I spent, I spent, I spent two days in the hospital because of that shit. Or, or Lorraine telling, oh, oh, St. Francis, kind to animals. Like, it feels like all the girls are telling them or telling Frankie, like, get your shit together. So, and Frankie needs that guidance. So, so would, would you say that? In a story that's principally about the four seasons, which, who are four men, um, you need to have, uh, you need to have, you know, women, women, and uh, uh, you know, wives, mothers, lovers, children uh, of the female gender uh, play a very significant role in the in the lives of the four seasons. So it, it's, it was important to have many, many female characters, but it was also important to have a show with a cast that was small enough so that we could actually get the show on without it costing millions and millions of dollars. So. You know, as a as a f- former actor, I uh, loved I, uh, I loved the idea of writing lots and lots and lots and lots of parts for those um, three uh, for those three actors. Ron Ron Melrose told us that he utilized Dawn in specific sections in the underscoring in Act you know um, in Act Two to illustrate Frankie's illusion that he would never be good enough for Lorraine. 
um, you know, and of course, when Frankie and Lorraine break up, you know, Don is playing in the, in the underscore, and um, it's also playing when when they meet. Well, two songs are playing when they meet. It starts with "Silence Is Golden," and then it goes into "Dawn." So we always wondered if Lorraine's name was originally Ron's. Ron is Ron is witty as hell when it comes to underscore. You know, um, he the way he matched up the scenes with the idea of the lyrical content of those songs is you know is pretty spectacular in Jersey Boys. It's one of the great unsung things of, I mean, huh, that's a funny joke, isn't it? <laughs> um, uh, one of the great unsung elements uh, is the underscore, because it, A, is literally unsung, but B, it's, uh, it is, it's really quite brilliant what Ron did, because um, uh, uh, it demonstrates how in tune he is. I, you know, I, I worked on another show with Ron for two years that never made it to New York, but um, uh, by then I knew him, you know, so I, used to, so I wasn't embarrassed to just, like, stare Adam, figure these figure these things out. Um, he's very, very clever. Anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, it totally question. it's it's totally okay. But so we always wondered if Lorraine's name was originally Dawn in your in the script. No. 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 Okay. <laughs> no. Would you like Would you like a longer answer? There was a the, the, the <laughs> sure. Lorraine Lorraine. Uh, there was a real life character who was represented in the show um, uh, that I can't really tell you about because it would. Uh, irritate some people um, and uh, when and so we were asked we Marshall and I were asked to eliminate that character uh, and we really didn't want to do it because it was really important to our, the second act of our show and Des was Des really didn't want to do it because he because it was you know it was a it was good stuff really really good stuff and uh, but uh, you know it was uh, you know we're just the writers. The, these are lives that are actually led by people, you know, and they were all still alive. And, um, you know, so we needed to, after protesting and trying to negotiate a different outcome, um, we said, okay, well, you know, well, we, if the answer is absolutely no and there's no room for negotiation here, we obviously will need to create something else. So we created the character of Lorraine. Um, based very, very loosely on a, a woman named Lorraine that Marshall and I both know, who was a reporter for the Detroit Free Press back in the day that we knew had interviewed Frankie Valley. And um, so we created the character. She's named Lorraine in honor of the woman who knows she, that it's, it, she, she's aware that, uh, that we did that. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, uh, it's not really so important that anybody else know, but um, <clears throat> uh, she was never called Dawn, no. No, in fact, in fact, we absolutely did not want to do that. We never wanted to have a character named Sherry, and we never wanted to have a character named Marlena. We never wanted to have a character named Dawn or anything like that because it just seemed so kind of cheesy to do that. Um, and would... and. Unless that were the case. But, I mean, it wasn't like he, Frankie ever dated a girl named Sherry, and so Gordio wrote a song about Sherry. Um, the closest that you would come to it being the case would be Ragdoll, which was, Bob was stopped on uh, 9th Avenue, I think, down around uh, Penn Station one day in his car, and, it, and a, a, a homeless girl came over to, you know, clean his windshield. And she looked like such a ragamuffin that he 
went up to crew and said, I have an idea for a song. I want to call it Ragdoll because of this, because of this homeless girl who, who was just, like, just trying to clean my windshield. That, I mean, that's the closest of like, oh, okay, I'm going to write about what I saw. But there were all, the, all those girls' names, the, uh, you know, the, all the, the, the girl songs, as we called them, was a sequence in the show at one point. Um, there was a time where the, uh, where the seasons went to perform at a, a drive-in and they, lo- they lost the power and uh, the fans turned the car headlights on so that they could continue with the concert. And they did, they did an, an acoustic concert um, uh, for, the, for the fans lit by the headlights of the cars at the drive-in. And, what, and, and we thought that was such a cool theatrical thing to create for the stage. Um, and we, had, uh, we decided for that section what they were going to sing was, the, you know, it's four guys on the road and they're, you know, they've left their wives and girlfriends behind. They're on the road, and, and uh, you know, they, they're meeting a lot of girls, and every girl has a, has a name, and every name has a song. And it was all these songs that Gordio and crew wrote, Connie and Ronnie and Marlena, and, and uh, you know, and, and they did this uh, medley. And that's why there are those cars in the set of Jersey Boys, the three Cadillacs with the, with the uh, headlights. When, when we realized that the first act was too long, we, take, we took that section out, but the cars had already been built. So Des said, write a scene where we can, you know, use the cars. So I do, I do have a question. Because you didn't want it to be cheesy. This was the story. And sometimes cheesiness can be associated with the term jukebox musical. So would you consider Jersey Boys a jukebox musical or a bio or a musical? Bio musical? <laughs> what what term do you want people to use? Well, you know, it's funny we should ask, you should ask the the uh, jukeboxes uh what the critics started calling jukebox musicals uh, uh with Mamma Mia had been around longer than there were jukeboxes. Jukeboxes didn't c- come around until 1937, 1938 around then. You know, the Ziegfeld Follies really were um, musical reviews that would take popular songs of the day and repurpose them in a different show. Um, the, uh, the George White Scandals of the 20s did the same thing. Irving Berlin built the Music Box Theater, still there on 45th Street, specifically to house the Music Box reviews because it really, because he, he was his own publisher and he made his money by selling sheet music for his songs. And his shows would run for three months and then no one would hear the songs anymore. And so his sales would go down. And he said, I hate this. You know, I want to sell more sheet music. So he would take songs from shows that had closed and put them in new shows. And they would be put on at the Music Box Theater that he built specifically for this purpose. Then he, and it worked. And, he, and then he thought, well, you know how to really make it work? Is to do it in a movie. So he went out to Hollywood and he did a movie called Holiday Inn, which was taking all these songs that he'd written for specific holidays and putting them in one thing. It was a jukebox musical. Of course, nobody called it a jukebox musical. And that form was born. Everyone's favorite movie musical of all time, Singing in the Rain. Arthur Freed, the producer of the movie, was a songwriter with uh, Herb Nuncio Brown. And uh, he had all these trunk songs from the 20s and 30s. And... L.B. Mayer said, do a movie musical where we don't have to pay for any new music. And so he said, I got this great trunk full of songs called Betty Comden, Adolph Green, 
come on out here. Gene Kelly, Stanley Don, and the directors. We're gonna we're gonna do we're gonna, we're gonna do a movie called Singing in the Rain. It can be about whatever you want it to be about. It's got to have these songs in it, including this one called Singing in the Rain. And, um, and Betty Condon famously said, so, you know, we went home and we thought, okay, well, there's going to be singing and it's going to be raining. <laughs> and we sort of went forward from there. But it's a, but it's a jukebox musical. The, um, you know, in 1978, maybe, I think, or seven, 1978, Ain't Misbehavin', which was, you know, uh, you know, the songs of Fats Waller, won the Tony Award for Best Musical. In, in, uh, in 1983, uh, there was a musical called My One and Only, which was a Gershwin jukebox musical, right? There was they, they, uh, Tommy Toon uh, and uh, Peter Stone and Mike Nichols and Twiggy and Tony Walton and uh, various other people uh, took uh, their pick of Gershwin songs and organized a show based around it. Um, that was 1983. 1982, 1992, Crazy For You won the Tony Award for Best Musical. was the same thing. It was a jukebox musical, but the jukebox that they went to was Gershwin-specific. That was 1992. In 1999, the Best Musical Tony went to Fosse, which, which was a jukebox musical of Fosse's numbers that he had done, it, not just songs, but actual entire pieces of choreography. Jerome Robbins Broadway, 1989, 10 years before that, a jukebox musical of moments of musicals. One could argue, in fact, that if you do a revival, a revival of Oklahoma, you are going to see it, to hear people will say we're in love and serve with the fringe on top and the farmer and the cowboy should be friends, etc. Because you're not going to find out who Laurie's going to take to the box lunch. You're going because you want to hear those songs. And so, in effect, these great old musicals that people go to because they love the songs, those are jukebox musicals now. Two, you go to wow. see Hamlet. You go to see Hamlet yes. to hear how is David going to say to be or not to be. That is the question. What's he going to do with that? With that? With that? What's he going to do with that soliloquy that I'm never going to have heard before? So in effect, even Hamlet is a jukebox musical. So that's called the jukebox. That's called the jukebox David. So my 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 point my point being that because the critics wanted something to be pejorative about, they created what they called the jukebox musical as a pejorative term for people who had a a paucity of imagination and were just going to stand on the shoulders of popular music. To sell tickets. Well, okay, you know, if you put Hugh Jackman in The Music Man, you're standing on the shoulders of Hugh Jackman to sell tickets. If you could put Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl, you're standing on the shoulders of Barbara Streisand. If you put Tom Cruise in a play or Nicole Kidman in a play or Meryl Streep in a play, you're standing on the shoulders of those people to sell tickets. So why not stand on the shoulders of music? Back in the day, if you had a Rodgers and Hammerstein show, you were standing on their shoulders to sell tickets. If Andrew Lloyd Webber does a musical, you're standing on his. If Lynn Miranda does a musical, you're standing on his shoulders. So why... So what, so what is exactly as pejorative? It's a little like walking into a museum and saying, oh God, not another rectangular painting. You know, I mean, who cares? Who cares what the shape of the frame is? It's what's inside the frame that's important. So are there, are there hilarious comedies where you fall out of your chair laughing? Of course. Are there comedies that just lay an egg and nobody laughs? Sadly, yes. Are there great movies about World War II that make you weep with patriotism? Yes, of course. Are there war movies that bore you to tears? 
Yes, that's true. Are there jukebox musicals that are thrilling to watch and that make you thank God for the day you were born? Yes, there are. Are there ones that fall short of that? Yes, that's also true. But just in and of itself, the genre does not mean that you don't deserve, uh, you know, oxygen. And and right. and the it's you know it's just kind of this genre the genreization of the theater or any art form is just really short-sighted because it's got nothing to do with what's on the stage. It's only got to do with somebody's idea of what's acceptable or not acceptable. And, you know, fuck you. Don't tell me what's acceptable or what's not acceptable. We're the ones who are doing all the work. We're going to try to make something great. If it falls short, the people who are going to pay for it are us. We, it will be our time and our effort and our treasure that we have spent. And, and if it, and, but, but of course we're trying to do something wonderful. Everybody, nobody tries to do a bad show. Anyway, so that's so that's my that's my speech about jukebox musical. Amen. Asalud, thank you for the history of jukebox musical. So you know, so so Jersey Boys within the within that genre, Jersey Boys decided, okay, we're going to do a musical biography. Now, and of course, because Jersey Boys was successful, there have been many many musical biography shows since then because people tend to do something that's like the last thing that was a big hit, and. But we we made we made the decision based on the the lives that these guys had led and the the sort of crazy ass stuff that they had been through, and 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 that and that it happens if they had made if they had made automobile tires or pharmaceuticals with instead of songs, it might have been a less interesting show. The thing that they made turned out to be the thing that makes musical theater exist. So it seemed like a it seemed like a uh, inevitable decision. It, it, you know, I'd like to say, oh, well, we were brilliant, but we weren't brilliant. We just did the thing that seemed impossible not to do. Right. You did what was right for the story and what made sense. And I, I, it just kills me, though, like, with all of the like, the coverage out there, and it's, oh, it's a jukebox musical. It's like, but because but, they don't take the time to research and know what you know about the history of this genre, you know? People just need to get over themselves. Well, after that, it became adaptations, you know, oh, adaptation. It, once, when Jersey Boys was successful, they left jukebox mm -hmm. musicals alone for a while and they went into adaptations. Yeah. Oh, everything's mm -hmm. adapted from something. Well, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Everything's adapted from something. Most things right. are. You know, guess mm -hmm. what? <laughs> So's Romeo and Juliet, adapted from right. something. You know, Shakespeare. Really? It was a yeah, very popular story, and Shakespeare went, "Oh, it's a popular story. I think I'm going to tell my version of it." You know, oh, you adaptation. Oedipus, which is thousands of years old. You know, there were how many versions of Oedipus are? Everyone had an Oedipus. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what oft was, <laughs> what oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed. Is a line from a poem by Alexander Pope, I think, an essay on criticism. But I mean, that's it. There's 88 keys on the piano. There's a certain number of stories that people love. You do it the way you want to do, and if you can tell it in a way that nobody's thought of telling it before, or in a way that hits home better, or makes people's you know hair stand up on the back of their neck, good for you. And then people always remember your Romeo and Juliet. 400 years after Shakespeare did that, look what happened. Jerome Robbins did West Side Story. Did it again. It's you know you, nobody. It's not important who invented the story. It's important to who tells it in a great way. That's okay. at least as important. So, um, uh, uh, you know, they went, they went off, the critics went off on a tear about adap adaptations as if that was a bad thing or had never happened until 2008. But of right. course, you know, but of course it's always happened. It's harder, in fact, to name completely original 
Broadway musicals. It's can a, you it's, can you name can you name a Broadway musical that's not based on anything? That's not adapted from anything? Can you do it? What about? Dear Evan Hansen, Dear Evan Hansen is a great example. Bandstand. In and of itself, adaptation is no more an indication of superior or inferior work than mm-hmm. um, uh, using pre-existing music is, uh, right. it means it has to be mm-hmm. inferior work. It depends on what's on the stage, not what the genre is. The moral of the story, I think that a lot of young people too, because like that, who are listening to to our show right now, thank you, is that just take things for as they are and enjoy the actual story. Because a lot of the time, especially with social media and everything is just so out there, um, we take a lot of things out of context. And we were thinking about this with, with, with the family is everything line that you and Marshall Brickman wrote. So, but think about where that line came from in the show, right? So family is everything. And it's talking about, how, are you kidding? Family is everything. But it's because he's, he's cheating on his wife on the road. And that's where the whole, and that's where the gravity monologue comes in. And people forget about what's surrounding that line. The same way in other movies, when you think of like, for example, for me, when I think of you're killing me smalls, when I go back and rewatch that, the Sandlot, to me, that's not a very crazy delivered line. It's just like a whatever line that people put out into like, and made it huge. Or when you think of the Berenstain Bears or Jif like with one F effect. or two Fs. Yes, that's, yeah, David mentioned this earlier. Like, yeah, we have that Mandela effect for too many things today. Tell me what, tell me what you mean about by uh, Mandela effect. So the, the Mandela We're, effect is yeah. literally everyone remembers it how they need to. It's like, literally. We, we, it's like, <laughs> The, you know the peanut butter company Jif? Oh, sure, yeah. How many... Yeah. How, how is it spelled? Oh I, oh, I thought you were talking about G-I-F. You know, the, I, those repeated... Oh, the GIF. I, I, like Jif versus did. GIF. That's yeah. what I thought, I thought that's what you. So, I thought that's what you were referring yeah. to. The peanut... Well, the mm-hmm. peanut butter... I, peanut butter had one F. One F, exactly. And, one F, and right. The, the Baron... Is it the Berenstain Bears or Berenstein Bears? Berenstein, yeah. Bears. Baron, Baron, I always thought it was Berenstein. Am I wrong? I Baron actually don't know. It's bears. <laughs> so yes, this, I, that's, yeah. So we 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 have those things in life a lot where we just we think we, that we're right and we're not. And, we and just, even like, like Luke, I am your father. Well, William that's Sapphire, who used to write a column for the New York Times um, after he was a speechwriter for Richard Nixon, who was an American president in the '60s and '70s. <laughs> Never heard of him. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, he there used to be there used to be a word. I, there still is a word called F-O-R-T-E, and most people pronounce forte. it forte, but the actual pronunciation is fort. And, mm. um, and really? William Sapphire, and, it used to, and I never knew what to do, because I knew that mm-hmm. people said forte, but I knew that the correct pronunciation was fort. And I also right. knew that if I said fort in a conversation, it would be assumed that I was wrong, even though I was correct. So I didn't mm-hmm. know what to do, and William Sapphire had a column in the Sunday Times Magazine section called On Language. So I wrote a letter into the column and I said, I have this dilemma, you know, I don't want people to think I'm stupid when in fact I'm being accurate. What, do you, like, how do you, if, if, the, if, if more people mispronounce a word than pronounce it, who's right? And he, and he wrote back and he said, you know, this is a, it's a fascinating issue, isn't it? And which is why I now say, after a certain period of time, and the Oxford English Dictionary does this too now, after a certain period of time, a, a, a mispronunciation becomes acceptable because so many people are using it that in fact it becomes correct. 
And so both are permitted. You can say fort, you can say forte. But there was a time when people were just wrong. And, um, and, right. and, uh, and, and the people who were right sounded wrong. It's like, right. And that's why the beauty of the theater, (laughs) exactly, right. And the beauty of the theater with dramatic writing and comedic writing and specifically Jersey Boys is that you have different versions and that's it. You have to just take it for how this person is presenting the information. Well, there was a period of time where there was a period of time where Marshall and I were trying to uh, um, assess who to actually believe. And uh, and then uh, one day uh, we were in, at Marshall's apartment and we were on two separate telephones talking to Tommy DeVito from Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. You know, the late Tommy DeVito who passed away in September from COVID at the age of, I think, 93. Um, uh, you know, he's no longer with us. Uh, and uh, and uh, Joe Saravo, an actor who played in the show uh, for 2,000 performances playing Gyp DiCarlo, uh, uh, passed away a week ago. Um, you know, that's the, the, the show, if the show's around long enough, there are joyful moments, you know, people who get together, romances, marriages, children, um, but then there's also the other side of it, which is, you know, people start to fall off the twig, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's, so it's just something I like to mention. Um, uh, but um, Tommy DeVito, uh, you know, we finally got him on the phone, and we had talked to Frankie and Bob a lot, and we'd heard Bob's version of X and we heard Frankie's version of X and then sometimes Frankie would have a different version of X and sometimes Bob <laughs> would have three different versions of X and and we were you know we thought how are we ever going to know and we got Tommy DeVito on the phone and he said don't listen to those guys I'll tell you what I'll tell you what really happened and from across the room <laughs> on our two different telephones we looked up at each other and it was like Eureka that was the light bulb <laughs> moment it was like oh I see they're all going to say that they're all right and that's why the the line originally was yes four guys you get seventeen different versions you know the the um, I yeah I think I, it, I I seem to recall that Des asked us to or maybe one of the actors said you know somebody came to see the show and was confused by that so we just we made it we we we, we made it a more modest statement of yes four guys you get four different versions which is obviously true from once you've seen the show um, and it didn't it didn't mess up the Rashman idea but the Rashman idea came from that hearing Tommy DeVito say no 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 we no, Tommy De- we we said, said Eureka Tommy DeVito Tommy yes. DeVito <laughs> said I'll tell you what really happened the idea of the idea of oh well that's actually that that will if they all feel that way then that gives us the luxury as writers of you know of recognizing that and then letting the audience decide for themselves and that's that was a big idea uh and uh and i think it's integral to the um to the success of the show that yes it's great to it's great to have you know usually when there's director dress in in a show that's the character that the audience has a privileged relationship with we were talking about richard the third earlier when richard the third speaks to us directly look look i'm i'm this i'm this terrible asshole but you you don't even know the half of it. Look look here's what I'm going to do. Watch watch this. Watch this. You're not going to believe this. The audience is immediately on that character's side. That's what I mean by privilege, a privileged relationship. We assume that everything that that character tells us is true because mm-hmm. why would he lie? You know, it's like what's the point of lying to the people who are watching your story if you want them to believe in you? Then you should be telling them the truth. The idea of a uh, an undependable 
narrative voice is really, really um, useful in Jersey Boys because we don't know it's undependable. There are clues. I mean, right, right off the top, when Tommy um, uh, steps forward and says, we put Jersey on the map, well, you know, you could argue, well, yeah. maybe Frank Sinatra put Jersey <laughs> on the map or maybe Bruce Springsteen put Jersey on the map. You know, Thank I mean, you. You know, yes. I, you know the, the, uh, maybe Thomas Edison put Jersey on the map. You know, there, there are... Yeah. There Whitney are, Houston, Jonas Brothers, you know, there, Bon Jovi. So, you know, so, you, you know, it's, we establish, I think, I don't want to... I don't want to sound ubiquitous or anything. You know, we establish, <laughs> we establish right off the bat that Tommy is a bullshit artist. He's an enchanting right. bullshit artist, but he's a bullshit artist. And that means that you take everything he says with a grain of salt. Now, right. I don't, still don't think the audience understands that. While Tommy is narrating the first section of this show, Spring. But when Bob appears and says, look... I didn't, it's not like I sprung to life fully formed, you know, the day that uh, Tommy DeVito, you know, that Joe Pesci uh, rang my doorbell sent by Tommy DeVito. So everything you've just heard Tommy DeVito say, that's not actually what, that's Bob Gaudio's character's way of saying, don't listen to him, I'll tell you what really happened. Then when fall begins, what's the first thing that Nick says? Oh, you know, Bob was so busy thinking about the future, he couldn't see what was happening right under his nose. Right. And we go back, we flash back in the, in the forward motion of the story to go back and build back up to the time where Norm Waxman comes and, and says, you know, we, we need to figure out what's going to happen. He owes us $150,000, um, which sort of breaks the rule, the narrative rule of the show, which is always, you know, we're starting here and we're going to move forward in the story. But Nick's section takes us back and replays a sort of a replay from a completely different point of view of what's happening to get us back to the Norm Waxman thing and you know into the sit down so that we understand where the band is because which is Nick's way of demonstrating that what Bob was telling us about which is the success and all of the records and everything that was just part of the story and then when as soon as Frankie takes over he really just asks lots and lots of questions so he doesn't have um, he doesn't have the definitive narrative perspective either that's the so the unreliable narrator is a is a was turned out to be a really really interesting um device for jersey boys mostly because it makes it a more interactive experience for the audience right so if you like tommy devito's character you're more liable to believe everything he says if you but if you're crushing on bob gaudio then you're going to believe everything he says and if you think nick massey's dreamy you're going to you're going to believe everything he says and if you're like the rest of the world you know this huge frankie valley fan you're 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 going to take what the other three say with a grain of salt and you're going to really listen to frankie and there there is no absolute truth and that makes it a more um engaging experience i think for the uh for the audience I think it's time to write a Passover Haggadah and cast the four the four sons as the four seasons. <laughs> it's um, I it's like in it's like how in Fiddler on the Roof where they're all in the town square, and um, the rabbi's son goes, "He's right, he's right. They can't both be how right. How can they both be right? And you know what? Says, you're you know also what? right. You're also right. That's right. <laughs> He's a little wet behind the ears, Reptevia. Exactly. Well, and this also goes to what David actually mentioned months ago when we were doing our brain dump just to get ready for this podcast. It sounds maybe like that very similar to how you and Marsha Brickman would just walk around the park and just talk and write, just think about everything. Um, David mentioned how Frankie's 
whole winter section, he never talks about himself. He's always talking about what everybody else said and how he misses Nick and how like I and Tommy, you know, Tommy did his thing, but you know, he he still took us here, you know. So it's it's so interesting to see that that's how Frankie told his part of the story because he's the guy who's at the front, you know, but he doesn't have to, um, you know. That, that, I don't he's know, the humble upfront guy. Kind of, yeah. And then, and and Rick, but the way you and Marshall set this whole thing up is a writer's dream and an audience's, like, ideal show, at least for me. I'm very biased. Because you have flashbacks. You have direct addresses. Like, for any person who loves Italian-American, like, mob movies, Scorsese movies, you have both of those, you know? So it feels familiar. No, something for me, for me that's cool is having dialogue weaving in and out of the music. I love right. when that happens and when that's done so effectively. It's delicious. Yeah. Well, that's Ron and that's yeah. that's Ron and and Des. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Des, who was you know who you know created Jersey Boys, really at the top of his um, powers, really the top of anybody's powers. It's such a spectacular piece of um, of uh, work um, uh, on. Uh, on Des's behalf, uh, Jersey Boys, which never really stops moving, and the and the director dress sections, which Des coined a term which I use all the time now, the book over, which is um, a way to get from here to there. You know, it the narration really is sort of a cheat in drama because it's it is the opposite of show not tell. It's tell. Right, and, but it's still good. And um, and so so it is. It, it's frowned upon by dramatists uh-huh. because it's because it's a cheat. You know, once upon a time, you know, it's it. Yes, it's good. It's storytelling, but it's not theatrical because it's telling and not showing. However, in Jersey Boys, in order to Des had an, an idea of what the pace of the show was going to be always in his head, and Des is an impatient person as a as a director and so the show has an impatience to it that I love because I too am an impatient person and so is Marshall we both it uh, uh, Marshall and I it turns out as as writers and Des as a director um have sort of a, a just a, a a a we we're in double time generally as men and as um, and as uh, theater workers so it was a good marriage uh, the three of us in terms of um Tone and pace. I don't mean speed. Speed is different from pace. But in terms of tone and pace, um, we 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 heard the show in a in a similar way. When Ron came on, and he probably talked to you about this, you know, the uh, Des built in uh, places in the show that don't usually exist in a musical. Uh, what usually exists are are, are Safeties in in you know and vamps where um, you know an actor if an if you know if an actor is getting more laughs than usual or fewer laughs than usual or more applause than usual or no applause at all or forget something there the conductor can skip to a safety or can cue an orchestra out of a safety into the musical meat of the scene based on what's happening that night that might be happening in a completely different way tomorrow and it happened in a different way yesterday. Um, and there are some uh, safeties in Jersey Boys, but there are also very, very sp- specific underscore sections that do not have safeties that would begin or end with hydraulic things moving in the set or whatever. So actors knew that you did not have the option to stretch it out, to milk a line, to slow down the tempo of the show, 
to play the audience, which, you know, sometimes actors do. But to keep the show moving at the tempo that Des wanted it at, that he rehearsed it at, and he would rehearse um, indefatigably with the actors running, 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 running scenes until it was at the tempo he wanted, and then Ron would create underscore specifically for that amount of time, so that the actors never had the luxury of stretching. And, um, and that's why the sh- when the show runs now, it's exactly the same length as it was 15 years ago when it started, and it's very hard to find shows that that's the case, long-run shows that don't get longer and longer and longer because that's just the natural entropy of performance is that you start milking things, you know, because things become precious to you in repetition. But in Jersey Boys, that was ne- it's never an option because of the way Des and Ron constructed the show and the underscore that, that, that girds the, uh, the, the event from the minute that it starts till the end. With the, with the narrations, um, uh, and Des used narrations that way too. He, sometimes we would get rid of a scene, and, and Des would say, "We can we, we can do this in a we can do this in five lines. Do this in five lines, and we'll do it as a narration. We'll do it as a book over to get us from here to there, so that we never had to have a meanwhile meanwhile moment. We never had to have a meanwhile while you know we were at the bowling alley. A funny thing was happening back at home. With we never had to do that. We had the book over instead. But that but." Um, and as useful as it is to Jersey Boys and as integral as it is to Jersey Boys, uh, uh, we got, uh, we, Marshall uh, and I, got a lot of criticism because it's, it, it's a dramatic cheat, because it's tell and not show. I'm not sorry, um, but, you know, these days when I'm writing, sometimes I think, oh, God, you know what would be really handy here is a book over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's, that's your, your facility as an editor. Right, because you know exactly where to fit things well, in. Well, yeah, but before transition. I before I edit, I write. I, I mean, I'm, I overwrite, overwrite, overwrite terribly. You know, in that sort of carpenter rule of, um, it's you can always make something more concise, but 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 it's but you you don't want to have to actually pad things once you get it into right. a muscular shape. Yeah. you don't want to necessarily have to pad things. Sometimes you do because there are things happening mm-hmm. in a theater piece that the audience isn't aware of. That because it's not something that they see, but there's some reason backstage or under the stage or over the stage where somebody needs more time to accomplish something. So occasionally you are asked to provide more time so that right. something can happen. And the audience goes, unfortunately, why is this scene so long? <laughs> <laughs> but that, doesn't, that uh, never happens in Jersey Boys because Des, no. because Des from day one, Des had a, a, like a tempo in his head. And he never varied from it, and, and it's one of the reasons why Jersey Boys is such a bright and alive show. When I'm working alone, I don't usually work from an outline. I don't usually work from a beat sheet. But I, but I always have an idea of what has to happen and in what order. Um, uh, but when I'm collaborating with another book writer or I'm collaborating with a composer, lyricist, when, it's, when there's more than me in a, in a room... Uh, the uh, you know index cards or you know some whatever version you want to yeah, uh, yes, talk about yeah. mm-hmm. of those are are important so that everybody's always on the same page and page, and that right. you can also very simply experiment once you get to very familiar with what those cards represent it's it's mm-hmm. you can you can experiment with structure yeah. and we uh, and Marshall Des and I spend a lot of time with a lot of index cards. Um, mm-hmm. uh, on, yes, on, that's what I was wondering. Jersey how you would set yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, I yeah. We and in a lot of different places, and there were some times where we actually had giant bulletin boards moved 
from one place to another because of, you know, whatever reason we had to be one place or another. But we did spend a lot of time with index cards um, and shifting and moving things around because that because at that stage you can do it and it doesn't cost anything. When if you start moving things around when the show is on stage, it becomes very, very expensive to do that and um, and therefore very, very inefficient. So you want to go you want to you know, you want to start rehearsal with your what uh, what feels at the time as the best possible order of the show, best possible shape of the scenes, best possible muscularity of the of the of the script, because yeah. there are a million things that you can't anticipate that are going to happen once you start rehearsals. You told us that somebody told you this like, from your writing from Jersey Boys to Peter and the Starcatcher. No one can tell that like it's like oh like oh the guy from Jersey Boys wrote this. They don't know like, oh. who, who who knew. Well, that's my little vanity. So, I, I, I yeah. you know just to contextualize it. I think what I was saying yeah. to you was I'm not mm-hmm. you know Marshall's a great writer, Aaron mm-hmm. Sorkin you know, um, Lynn, Miranda you know Terrence McNally you know the Lynn Nottage, uh, you know Tony Kushner you know the Chekhov Shakespeare, <laughs> you know yeah. there are, there are. <laughs> Tom Stoppard, they're a great writers, um, yes. which is how I know I'm not one. Um, you know, uh, uh, greatness, uh, greatness, is, uh, in, greatness is a distinction, and I don't think people should, you know, cl- claim that mantle too easily. I, I, so I thought, okay, well, what, if I'm going to write, what kind of a writer am I going to try to be? You know, I was... I was you know, middle-aged by the time I started this gig. So I, I thought, well, you know, what am I going to be like if I ever get a chance to do it again? And I thought, you know, it, and, and eventually I started thinking about what my voice was. What was my voice going to be as a writer? You know, if you go to see a Woody Allen movie, it's hard. It's, you know who it you, is. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you may not know what movie it is, but you always know it's a Woody Allen movie. They sound like Woody Allen movies. They feel like Woody Allen movies. You know, the... Uh, but I don't think it's necessarily true of other writers. And I thought, okay, it's like actors. You know, there are the there are personality actors, the stars. You know, um, and they gen- they tend to be they they can be great, but they're but they're usually playing themselves. Robert Redford, for example. You know, then there's then there are the actors like Dustin Hoffman. You know, who are character yeah. actors. You know, like you know, you see him in The Graduate, and then you see him in. Midnight Cowboy, Lenny. and then you see him in Lenny, and then you see him in Little Big Man. You think that's the same guy? That's like amazing. You know, the the difference is um, he he had to do that because of the way he looked. If he looked like Robert Redford, maybe he would have done it another <laughs> way. But you know, I, I thought, okay, so what kind of a? I'm not I'm not you know I, I'm not a Robert Redford kind of a writer because I'm I I'm not beautiful and great. I'm more of a Dustin Hoffman kind of a writer, which is, I, I mean, I, I need to, I want to be different. Yeah. So yeah. I, I thought I'm going to make that my goal. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try yes. to, I'm going to try always to write something and not have somebody go, oh, I, this must be written by that guy who did the other thing. And, um, and to choose opportunities that would allow me to do that. So, yeah, so, the, you know, Ron Melrose yeah. and I spent two years working on a show called um, Superfly. Uh, for the legendary Bill T. Jones. Mm-hmm. And um, at the end of that, I think I said this to you the other day, um, you know, one of the cast members, uh, 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 you know, it was a, a, a group entirely of uh, uh, actors of color and, uh, and um, uh, with one or two, uh, uh, I, Ron and I were, you know, 
sort of like the white guys in that group. And um, uh, one of the actors brought his parents over after we presented it, and they said, "You're the writer." And I was so delighted, you know, because they couldn't, you know, because they couldn't quite um, believe that what sound it just sounded so quote unquote authentic, you know, which is the. Uh, uh, which is different from actual authenticity, right? Mm-hmm. It, uh, Jersey right. Boys is a good uh, example of what I mean by that. The, yes. You know, the songs in Jersey Boys are presented in ways that feel authentic to the way we remember the records. Mm-hmm. But if you put them up against the original records, you hear that they're actually, they're, they're actually quite different. Oh, big time. So if we aimed for actual authenticity, it might not have been as effective as what we did with Bob Gordio and Steve Kennedy and Ron Melrose and the music department, um, Steve Orich, of course. But Steve Orich's orchestrations, which sound like, oh, that's like the original record. And then you hear the original record and you go, oh, no, that's not the original record at all. The, um, you know, these guys, um, Steve and Ron and, and uh, uh, Steve Kennedy and... and, uh, and uh, uh, Gaudio, of course, supervising the whole thing, um, figured out a, they just made this decision that they were going to present Jersey Boys in a way that felt authentic, not actually was authentic, because what the audience wanted to, that what would give the audience the best time was something that felt authentic, and don't get too hung up on what actually, actually happened. Aaron Sorkin famously said, you know, when he was yes. writing uh, when he was writing the Social Network, and uh, and people were complaining that uh, the real life Mark Zuckerberg wasn't exactly like the character that he wrote in that movie. He said, "Well, you know, art isn't about what actually happened. Art is what writers do with what happened to tell a great story." And um, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but uh, but uh, but you know that that's. That's true, and Jersey Boys isn't a documentary, and the music in Jersey Boys is not meant to be a document of the of the original records, but it feels authentic. You know, I'm I'm doing a I'm I'm writing a, a Princess Bride now with Bob Martin of uh, 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 Slings and Arrows fame and uh, Drowsy Chaperone, of course, The Prom, uh, and uh, you know, and like collaborating with Marshall, Bob is a Bob's a much better writer than I am, I and mean, he's very, very scholarly about it, as well as being hilarious. Um, he, uh, he understands about writing so well, and I, I think, okay, well, and we definitely do, okay, like, okay, you're going to do this scene, and you're going to do this scene, and then, you know, that's how we move forward. We sort of leapfrog over each other, um, and that's how we're working. But when I'm writing, I am trying to write invisibly, which is to say, I would like the audience to come to see Princess Bride and go, oh, well, really what this does is this sounds like a musical that William Goldman, who wrote the novel and wrote the screenplay of the movie and was one of the great writers of the 20th century, um, this, is, this, was, this must have been written by William Goldman. And, you know, so we are, we are making a conscious effort to write in the style of a third person, not in either of our styles. Um, and... Uh, and then Bob and I are also doing something else. And, and that isn't written in any particular... That doesn't exist in a particular style. So there, I'm just trying to make it seem as if Bob's written the whole thing. Because, you <laughs> right. know, or, or one person's... Or one person... It's right. that there's one, one voice. voice. Yes. There's one right. voice. And, and his particular comedy, which makes me laugh, is awesome. much, you know, is, is, um, is thrilling for me because I don't, I don't have that gift. I don't, I'm not a good 
I'm not. I don't. You, know. you are a comedic writer. Well, Marshall makes the distinction between jokes and laughs. You know, um, I can't. Ah, okay. I can't write jokes. I've been, writing jokes is a very, very particular skill, and there are yeah. a lot of people who are really, really brilliant at it. And and then there's me. I'm not in that category. The writing laughs. The difference. The distinction is a laugh is mm-hmm. laugh is from character. A joke can you know you can take a joke out of its context and just say it, That's and great. it's funny because it's a joke. Mm-hmm. There's a setup. There's a punchline. Mm-hmm. A laugh is something that without the context of the character and the scene wouldn't be funny at all. Um, a laugh is better. Those well in the in the theater, I think laughs are better because in the theater, uh, it's a more it's a richer laugh because it's based on character. Right. So yeah. and and those well, those are fun to write, and I can I can write those. And the and the great joy is when suddenly it occurs to you because it's not always when you're writing the scene the first time. Although Bob right. Bob. Damn him! Seems to have the the, um, the the skill to do that, the talent to do that. He seems to just his first drafts of things are just hilariously funny. My first drafts of things are this is what the scene's about, and then I look at it and look at it and look at it, or I act it out and act it out and act it out until I think uh, until something occurs to me, like all right, so like, that's I, the evolution of your writing. Okay, well, that's how you know, you go. I can give you an example. Um, there's yeah. a scene with Mary and Frankie and Jersey Boys um, where they meet and they go to a pizza place, Mangio's Pizza, and um, uh, you know because they don't sell slices. This is like a fancy pizza place. So they don't sell slices, and then um, and then uh, 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 Mary. The first person to say the the word "fuck" in the in the show, Hell yeah. um, yes, which we go. thought was we just thought it was amusing that the woman would say it first. Um, Page twenty four. Uh, you know, says uh, you know you can't end it. You you can't end in a Y. You can't end Valley V A L L Y, which is how Frankie was originally going to spell it. Um, you can't do that because you're Italian. You know, Castelluccio, Delgado, Pizza. <laughs> The pizza wasn't wasn't there when we wrote the script, um, and but you know w- we were at a rehearsal and we were watching Jen and uh, David Neronia rehearsing this in uh, La Jolla. David Neronia uh, uh, playing Frankie Valley and uh, Jen Nemo playing Mary Delgado, and Des had staged it with the sitting at a table and there was like a giant pan as a prop, you know, in the rehearsal that represented the pizza prop that didn't exist yet, and I was sitting there, and. And I and I looked over to Marshall and I said, "Well, it's like going to be right there. She's got to say pizza." So we so we so we, we took a po- we took a we took a post-it and handed it over to Des and Des said, "Okay, after Delgado Castelluccio, say pizza." And that's how pizza was born. Only because watching the thing, oh, that would be funny. Be funny because of character, right, and situation. So that's an example of what I mean. Coming in after the fact and going, "Oh yeah, that'll be funny." That would be fun. Right. There's a practicality to it. That's Well, yeah. it's uh, it, you know, I, you I imagine I can only dream what it would be like to be able to just write funny stuff. But um, you know, uh, it's the 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 funny stuff that occurs to me usually comes from behavior or situation mm-hmm. and so I have to kind of, you know, so yeah. I'm always I'm always situation lagging. Coming. I'm always, you know, bringing up the rear on that. So w- would you say you are a method writer in terms of like morphing yourself into a voice that you want to write for? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what that... that a, I'm not quite sure what... Is that, is that a thing? Well, I, it's just something I just made up. Well, now. no, I, I mean, I, I, I know what a method actor is, but I mean, like, I, right. I, I don't know that it's... 
it's not I, I don't know that that's how do I would say that? it but but no. maybe it's just mm-hmm. that uh, it's important to have a voice in your head that's not your own voice mm-hmm. so if okay. that's what you mean by method writer um, yes. you know then then yes but I think it's good to you want your characters to not sound like they are all the same person because that's just mm-hmm. that's not good writing that's you know at the very least that's lazy writing you want your characters to be okay. distinct one from the other and in order to do that since you're one person you need to have you need to think of different voices for characters and what i usually do is i think of somebody in re- real life or a character um and think about how that person sounds and then i just sort of store it away and and uh uh, with all the other voices until it's time to um, until it's time to write the scene, and the fun part is, um, you know, when you get to write a scene with six or seven or eight characters talking, because most scenes don't do that. Most scenes are two people or three people. You know, it's because it's because it's hard to write. It's hard to keep six or seven or eight distinct voices in your head without being a crazy person. <laughs> so, right. so the the sit down scene. That's the one with most people talking at once, I would say. And it's a like, long scene too. Hard? It's a very unusual in a yeah. musical to see a scene that's like right. five or six pages long without a piece of music mm-hmm. in it. Very, very rare in a musical to have a scene that long. Right. How how challenging was it to write that scene? Oh, I it wasn't challenging at all. It was great, great it fun wasn't. to write that scene. Uh-huh. Well, it's the great scene. It's like you know when you. It's like let's yeah. pretend we're Nick Pileggi and we're writing a scene for a Scorsese movie. This is going to be wonderful, right. <laughs> you know. But also, we had very, very early on. Um, I think from uh, the very first thing that we'd written for Bob and Frankie was something about uh, Nick being very, very fastidious and um, and having a problem rooming with Tommy. None of, it, none of which was true. We just made that up. We didn't know that we made it up. Uh, we didn't know it wasn't true or not. We just made it up. And, um, uh, uh, you know, Tommy, uh, full disclosure, Tommy, um, you know, was always a little bit pissed off at us because Tommy was not the way he's described in the play, but he was good-natured about it and, and didn't make a big deal about it because he knew that it worked as a scene um, but uh, to differentiate them. But uh, the idea that Nick and Tommy were roommates who who had friction between them was more interesting than they got along fine. Um, but, uh, but so that was, the, 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 the Nick part of the sit-down scene was something, one of the earliest, earliest runs that we'd written. Uh, so we, we had that. And we also had a very, very clear idea of what the scene needed to be, which is the band's in real trouble and it's the end of the group. And... Frankie decides to do something extraordinary, which is, I'm going to, you know, we're, the band takes the debt. And as a way to keep the band together, and, it's, and it doesn't, it's, it, and the group still falls apart. And um, uh, we knew that those things, those events had to happen. And, we, and so we wrote the, we, you know, we wrote a, the version that's pretty much unchanged from you know the very first time we wrote it to what's in the show now although there was a point where because it was not historically accurate it's another you know feels authentic versus actually is authentic what actually happened is that Nick left the group before Tommy DeVito did and at one point Frankie called from somewhere maybe Atlantic City and something had been you know weighing on his mind and he said you know I you know it's just not true and you know he felt like it was disrespectful to Nick or something 
And um, he said, you know, I, I, really, I, really want, I really want it to be the way it really happened, which is that Nick leaves and then Tommy leaves, which of course is an easy thing to say over the phone, but it's a, you know, it's a killer to change the, I mean, because that, that changes everything in the second act of the show. Changes everything. Changes that scene, but also change, changes everything that happens, you know, um, for Nick in that section and every song choice and all that stuff. So, um, but we did it because uh, when Frankie said, I really want you to do it, we, you know, we would give it the old college try and we did it. And to his great credit, um, he said, this isn't as good, is it? It's not as good as, it's not as, good a, as a play. No, it's not, Frank. No. He said, all right, we'll, uh, we can go back to the, to the other way. Because, of course, they, you know, again, this is their lives, this is their group. They have what really happened. And, and you know, if, if the show were to be successful, we didn't know at the time whether it would or not, but if the show were to be successful, the show would be construed as what really happened. Because that's what success does, you know. And, and or more people would know the story it's like Forte and Ford, you know, people would know the wrong thing as the right thing. And, and, and so what do you do with the right thing? But, uh, but he was, a, you know, he was clever enough at the, and, and um, sophisticated enough about theater, even though he's not a theater guy. He just was instinctively sophisticated enough to understand that, that uh, Tommy leaving, the way, the way, the character that we needed Tommy to be in the Shakespearean sense, you know, Tommy being the sort of the Shakespearean villain of the story of the Four Seasons um, needed to resolve with Tommy being, you know, having to leave, ha- Tommy having to pay the price for what he had done to get the band in that fix. And even though that's not exactly the timing that it happened in real life, it's, it just it makes a better shape in terms of drama. I think this is a great place to wrap up. Don't hold me uh, accountable for anything I've said, ladies and gentlemen and children. I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I'm just trying to, uh, you know, just trying to be a Jersey Boys fan. That's all I am really now at this point in my life. You guys are great. I've, I've, I've very much enjoyed meeting you.